I hope the Lord's already spoken to you this morning. Uh, he has to me. And I never want to take that for granted. I promise you, Anderson County is full of thousands of people this morning that will go to church and they'll sing all the songs and talk to several folks and listen to the preaching and even drop something in an offering plate, but they won't really have an encounter with God. So if you've had that today, you're blessed. Uh, he didn't owe that to us, but if he's given that to you, you ought to say thank you, Lord, right now and then ask him to continue to meet with you this morning. If you would join me, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and as you're turning there, uh, I want to kind of use a couple of illustrations. Uh, we'll have less of a review this week, one little paragraph in a moment. Romans 5. One of the things I did for about 15, 16 years was to coach basketball. And that was counting as an assistant coach for a man named Jeff Darnell in the JV, eventually the head coach in the JV, and then eventually the head coach at the, at the high school team, the varsity team uh, in the Christian school nearby that I was working at. And we had some good years and had some good players. And uh, again, you got to put it in the level that we were playing at. We're not like playing like Division I college level players, anything like that. But we had a good time with it. I mention that for this reason. I would like to think that over the course of those 15 or 16 years that I became a better coach each year. I like to think that. I'm, I know I was definitely a better coach in the last few years than I was in the first three or four or five years. So I hope I was improving. But if during that time someone of the caliber of a John Wooden, I don't know if you know who that is, my personal favorite coach, Dean Smith, before he passed away, or probably the best coach in the world today, Greg Popovich, if one of those three guys had come to our school and just kind of sat in the stands and making me really nervous as I'm trying to coach and they just keep sitting up there and before the next season, if they were to approach me and said, hey, uh, Coach Bartlett, is yeah, yeah, yes, sir. <laughs> Listen, I've been watching your team for a while and uh, I think I've seen some things that might help your team. Well, great. What is it? If they were to tell me, hey, in just a few weeks, when you get ready to kick your season off, one thing I would suggest, and I'd be glad to help you, that first week is so key. Oh, yes, sir, absolutely, that's key. Everything flows from that first week. Right, here's what you need to do. Don't let the boys touch a basketball for the whole first week. I'm going to tell you, I'd be like, what? That is so counterintuitive to the way I coached. When I coached, we didn't run lines just to run lines. We didn't run laps to get in shape. We ran full court layup drills with a ball in our hand or a passing drill. Every drill we did, I wanted us doing it with a ball in hand unless it was some strength conditioning thing. But if a Hall of Famer says, put the basket, don't let them touch, that's a reward if they do what we say in the first week. You got my attention. That's not how I think, but I'm listening. Let's use a different scenario. Say someone's really, really struggling in their finances, really struggling, barely making ends meet, some months coming up short, barely making it the other months. But they know a multi, not a millionaire, but a multi, multi-millionaire. But here's the millionaire story. They lived in abject poverty. But by being wise and seeking the Lord, God blessed them to the point that they are now. Now the person who's struggling financially asked them for some advice. What would happen if that person would come to them and say, listen, I'm, I'm ready to talk with you and meet with you. Okay, great. 
I've looked at your books and I've looked at all your online statements and I've gone back a while and I've seen several things, but I've spotted one right off the bat. It's the initial thing we need to fix. Oh, oh great. Oh, I'm glad you spotted something. And this is going to help you. I really believe this is going to help you. Well, what is it? Yeah, next month when you get ready to pay your, your house payment, yeah, don't pay that yet. What? Don't pay your power bill. Don't buy any groceries. Don't pay any phone bill till you get on your knees and ask God, God, what would you have me give back to you? Because I've been looking. You're giving nothing to God. I'm going to tell you what they're going to hear. They're going to hear, you're a nut. I'm coming up short. Your advice is to give it away. You better start giving God something and I believe he'll bless that. Now, they may not like it. It may go against what they're thinking but the person's track record says, i got to listen to what you're saying. I mentioned those two, coaches, giving, for this reason. Here's the review, you ready? We've preached two messages on Romans 5, 1 through 5, and in that process we've learned six things. Six things that God says is true of a believer. This isn't true of everybody. But if you're here today and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, then here are six things, and I'll review. Here it comes. You have peace with God. You have access to grace because you have access to God. Number three, you have hope. You can rejoice in hope. Guaranteed, you will experience the unfiltered glory of God. That is coming, so you can go ahead and start rejoicing because you have this confident expectation. You'll experience the glory of God. But watch number four, because this was last week. If you're a Christian, you not only can, but should rejoice, yeah, in your suffering. As we pointed out last week, that is not having peace in the suffering, it's even above that. That's great. But more than just having peace is, Lord, thank you for what you're doing because you're using this suffering to create spiritual endurance in me that's going to result in proven character and I will have greater hope and expectation that what you say will happen will happen. And then the fifth thing we didn't touch on last week because it's this week, God has poured out his love into your heart. And the sixth thing, if you're a Christian, if you're truly saved, not everyone... But the believer, you have the Holy Spirit poured in your life. Now, four and five, I don't know if you caught that, those can cause some problems mentally, emotionally, a conflict. Here it is. Wait, we're supposed to rejoice in our suffering, and yet we're supposed to know that God loves us. I'm going to tell you, those two don't mix, right? Uh, we experience suffering, all of us do, and sometimes if we're not careful, we will be apt to think, I don't know that God loves me while I'm going through this. Oh, they match. You have on your handout three sure facts. These aren't the only facts. I'm going to tell you, these aren't the only facts. These are three sure facts I want us to notice this morning as it pertains to the introduction we just gave. Three sure things I know biblically. Number one, and I hope you know this, God is completely sovereign over all that happens. Do you guys know that? God is completely sovereign. That means he has complete control over all that happens. Number two, I know this, God loves his people passionately. Do we know that? God loves his people passionately. Now, I'm going to tell you, if we stopped right there, you say, okay, hold on, let me digest those two. God is completely in control. Every, he's in control of everything that happens. Got it. 
and God loves his people passionately. If we stop right there, then we may come to a conclusion the Christian life should be us sleeping soundly all night, waking to go one more day down to the local resort, sit around the pool, sipping on our pina colada as the pool boy brings us another hamburger that does not cause us to gain any weight. It is not clogging our arteries because God's in control and God loves us and that's the Christian life. And we're not getting sunburned like I did this week. Uh, but the sun is perfect and the temperature's great and anytime we want we jump. And we're waiting for even greater things when we get to heaven. But the Christian life is just hanging out at the pool. Because God's in control and he loves us. But here's the third thing we've got to remember. We will suffer in this life. We will experience suffering in this life. And I realize those facts don't seem to mesh. A lot of people, I believe, in fact, right here this morning, I don't know who you are, I'll guarantee you in this room there's people who believe two out of three. You believe two out of three. Here's what you believe. God loves us and we experience suffering. God loves us and we experience suffering and here's your theology. Yeah, God's sovereign, but you don't really know what it means because when life comes push to shove, you conclude God's not really in control of that area. Oh, but he loves us and we experience suffering. Others may be in this room, and I'm getting ready to describe you. Here's where you're at. Oh, God is sovereign. He is in control. He knows everything before it happens. He has all power, all knowledge. God is completely in control. And I know we experience suffering. And so if you're not careful, you'll conclude, I just don't know about God loving us. What Paul's telling us this week in the text we're about to read is all three things are compatible. All three things harmonize, and the proof that they harmonize is going to be in verses 6, 7, and 8 of our text this morning. Once you've written that, would you join me? I'm going to read. We're not going to go back to verse 1. Let's go back to verse number 5, read down to verse 11. So verse 5 picks up the fifth and sixth benefit in this life of being justified. Can I add one word before verse 5 just to set the context? It's my addition. Here we go. Ready? Verse 5. And our hope, that's the idea. Our hope does not put us to shame. Because, why do we know that our hope's not going to put us to shame? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. That was the fifth. Through the Holy Ghost who has been given to us, the sixth. And now he's going to explain the fifth. How do we know God's love has been poured? Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely, one, a human being, one of us will scarcely die for a righteous person. Righteous there doesn't mean sinlessly righteous before God. It just means a person who's innocent in a situation. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Another scenario in the part of verse seven, second part of verse 7. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9 is a separate thought. Verse 9 and 10. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
Verse 10 actually explains what verse 9 says, takes it further, more clarity. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now, you see the time factor, much more, if that was then, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then he closes out our third thought today, verse 11. More than that, we who are justified also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is when we are at war with God and we're losing and Christ comes between us and God and he takes all the punishment and the end result is we get to be friends with God, even even children of God. So we're brought to harmony and peace. All of that is restored. That's the reconciliation. Three things I want us to notice in our text today. First of all, God's past demonstration of his love. God's past demonstration, there's a time factor all through, it's running through the text today. God's past demonstration of his love. We'll read verse 6, 7, and 8 in just a moment. But do you guys yet realize, have you realized this? Everything, I feel confident in saying this, everything in scripture, it appears to me, is all running back or forward to Christ and the cross. Has everybody figured that out? The Old Testament, what's it? it's all leading up to the cross. Here we, the people in the New Testament, it's, it's leading back to the cross. Here we are, 2017, and we're still talking about what happened back at the cross. Everything flows from there. In fact, one very famous author and pastor named John Piper says, the cross of Christ is the blazing center of the glory of God. You think about that, I cannot disagree. You say, well, I would imagine the throne of God is the blazing center of the glory of God. He would say, that is the glory of God. But the cross is where we see the attributes of God. If I were to give you a piece of paper, not not right now, and say, hey, take three minutes, write down every attribute of God that was displayed at the cross, you would probably write things like God's holiness is on display, God's love, God's justice. Yes, he has to do, he has to move away the sin, but he has to deal with the sin, his justice, his love, his power, his wisdom, his grace. It's the blazing center. So here's what I would tell you. When we look at Christ and his cross, we find three things definitely coming together. We find God's love, we find God's sovereignty, and yes, suffering. They go together. Suffering. Look at verse 5. Paul says, hope, our hope does not put us to shame because, and he gives two reasons. Last week I mentioned that if you're a Christian, Our confident expectation, you say, I'm planning on going to heaven. We will never get there and be ashamed, which means disappointed, embarrassed. It was all a hoax. I thought it was going to be a lot more than this. That will never happen for two reasons. Number one, God's already put his Holy Spirit in me. I know he's serious about eternal life because he's already put a down payment of eternal life in the form of the Holy Spirit in me in this life. I know I have eternal life because I have the Spirit in this life. And here's the other one. God is poured His love into our heart, according to verse 5. See the phrase? I think you have a note in your handout. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. I'm going to use several quotes today, and here's a first little small one. John MacArthur writes of that phrase. By the way, I want to say something. Words mean things. Little phrase like this. This is important, what I'm about to say. I'm going to finish with this thought in our conclusion today. Here's where we'll finish. He says, this two words poured into means, quote, lavish, outpouring to the point of overflowing. So I'm going to make a real simple point here. What the Bible says, if a person has been saved, 
then their hope is secure. They know they're going to make it. They know they're not going to be embarrassed, ashamed. Why? Because God's love has already been poured, lavishly poured to the point of overflowing. What's been poured into them? The love of God. So the point there is, that's a real event. That real event causes a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, you are absolutely fully convinced of the love of God. Somebody here today, you may not be fully convinced of the love of God, but the Christian, the justified one who's been reconciled to God, you say, I am convinced. Why? Because it's been lavishly poured into me to the point it's overflowing. I even find myself telling other people about the love of God. I even find myself loving God back because his love has lavishly been poured into us. And then we read verse 6. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And you'll remember what verse 9 and 10 said about us. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. God's love is so real, he doesn't just say it. If God only said in his word, I love you, honestly, that's enough because God cannot lie. That would mean God loves us. But God doesn't just say it, he shows it. He proved it. How? Listen. When we were his weak, according to verse 6, while we were still weak. You say, what does the word weak mean? It means completely helpless. I stand there a while ago. This morning, I think it was this morning, I wrote down to the side of two or three little thoughts about this idea of weak. Hadn't really thought about it before, but I kind of used the idea. Deanna and I were doing something, I think Friday, and I kind of thought that idea. And I'm going to share it with you. You say, what does completely helpless mean? All right, you're going to have to picture it. Pacific Ocean. Someone's by themselves and their boat, boat goes down and they're a thousand miles in every direction from any land. And they don't have a life jacket on. You, pay, you got it? A thousand miles from land, no life jacket, the boat just sunk. They are dog paddling. They're floating on their back. They're kind of, you know, maybe freestyling. They don't know how far. Are they, are they going to make it to land? By themselves. You say, no chance. A thousand miles Pacific. They may get eaten, but if they don't, there's no chance. A thousand miles, they'll ne- they're going to die. They're completely helpless. They are weak. But the Bible says, for while we were still weak at the right time, the idea is their only hope would be, boy, what is the chance a boat would come by? There's no chance. One in a million But what if a boat did and it was right as they were going down, down, down and they'd already taken water into their lungs but then that boat comes just a time. A diver goes in and rescues them, brings them up, brings them back to life and starts the IV and gives them food and drink and all the things and and sunscreen and tries to recover them, gets them to land to the hospital as fast as they can. What I just described is salvation. We were drowning unable to do anything about our sin. We can't stop sinning. We sure can't do anything about all of our past sin. And in the right time, just in time, God sent Christ who dives deep into the muck and mire of our sin as we're going down the last time. And when a nine-year-old boy, God reached down and Jesus Christ saves us and brings us up. That's salvation. What the Bible's talking about here is God's love so real. When we were his weak, get this phrase, ungodly enemies, Christ died for us. He loved us and died for us. His ungodly enemies. Who would do that? 
No one does that. I really hesitate to tell this because his family is to my left and they've heard Charlie tell this many, many times. I'm going to attempt it. Just a little illustration, true story. Charlie, my pastor, told several times and I can't remember if it was cricket or raisin. Y'all correct me later. They used to have these little dogs, I think one at a time, but they lived in downtown Williamston, uh, the metropolis of Williamston. And I think there's a little street called Mill Street and I think there was a Presbyterian house there and, and there was years and years ago and Charlie liked to take walks in the morning. And that was his prayer time, and he would take the little dog. And he told about one time it was still dark, barely becoming daylight. And I don't know if it was cricket or raisin, whichever dog. But the dog was ahead. This is normal. And so Charlie's walking. And I guess the dog knows the little routine. But he could tell that the dog had found something. And so the dog's over there messing around with something. And Charlie's curious. And he gets closer and closer. And he kind of realizes, oh, I think I know what that is. And he comes up. And sure enough, cricket or raisin, whatever it is, has found a dead animal. And so Charlie is kind of, he's morbid. I'll just tell you, he was a scientist. He had a strange mind. He couldn't just say, come on, come on, cricket. Come on, raisin, let's move. No, Charlie has to get a stick, right? He's got to get a stick. He's got to start prodding and poking. And again, it's, it's barely becoming daylight and shadowy and all that. And so he gets the stick on it and he flips it open. And about three or four things happen. Number one, he heard something. Number two, he smelled something. And he thought he could kind of see what was happening, but he knew This thing is maggot-ridden carrion. But then a fourth thing happened because cricket or raisin smelled it. But didn't stop by smelling it. Was it a he or a she? Do you remember? It's a she. Was it cricket or raisin? Cricket. Cricket. She. Here he is. Charlie flips it over. He can hear the maggots moving around, smells this awfulness. And Cricket not only smells it, Cricket takes her face and just runs it right into the carrion. And then, that ain't enough, she does the other side of her face and rubs it in the carrion, the maggots, and the ooze. And that ain't it. She then has to get in it, and all of a sudden, she's wallowing all, you know, how the dog does She's wallowing all in the maggot-ridden carcass. And then she did one more thing. After that was all her, she comes over to Charlie and wants to, like, jump up on him as if to say, look what I found for us. And Charlie responds, get off me, you stupid dog. You stupid. Get away from me. You say, man, what a dumb dog. But Charlie realized that's cricket's nature. Her nature loves that. A dog's nature loves dead animals. Your nature and my nature left to ourselves, we love sin. And while we were loving sin and wallowing in sin, how dare we come to God and say, you'll love me, right? You'll send your son to die on the cross. What chance is there of that? The very thing that God hates, we love? Are you kidding me? But you know what God did? While we were still weak, ungodly, Enemies of God, loving what he hates. God says, I do love you. And he sent his son to die in our place. And it was the right time. I won't go into that phrase. I'm just going to say it was God's sovereign time. Jesus was not an accident. His death was not an accident. 300 prophecies fulfilled. Jesus goes through his earthly life, especially from the time of 30 to 33. He keeps talking about my hour, my hour. He came to this earth knowing what was going to happen to him. 
I'm going to say a sentence you may have heard before, but you need to digest this. God created us knowing we would sin. Knowing that because of our sin, it would require his son's death on the cross to save us. If I will save them, it will require your death. You will leave me. You will go down there and die for those people. That's the only way. It won't be enough just to love them. We have to love them and do something about the sin because our holiness and justice demands. Look at verse 7. Paul gives an illustration, frankly, of man at his best. Here we are at our best. Two scenarios. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. I don't remember who to give credit to. I read it so long ago and I remembered it. Someone said, if you want to picture this, remember the Old West? The Old West, it was kind of justice, kind of was on the fly, but the local marshal or judge, they would hear the case, crime's been committed, and they would sometimes just execute people. And what was the typical way of execution? Anybody remember? Hanging. And so each town may have like a scaffold built or a stage with an open door and, you know, bar over the top with a rope. Here's what I want you to picture. Someone's going to die at high noon the next day. I mean, at noon, and it's 11.57, and they're being asked, do you have any last words before they put the hood over them and pull the lever, and they will die. They'll squiggle and squirm, and they'll last a few seconds, and they will die just before that happens. And the person with their hands tied behind their back and their feet tied keeps continuing the same story. I'm innocent. Yes, these are my last words. I didn't do it. I promise you had the wrong person. No, we know you were there. We saw that. Someone said they saw, and, and it's you, and you're going to, if that's all you have to say, then go ahead and put the hood on. Listen, here's my question. What is the likelihood that someone in the crowd, how likely is this, someone in the crowd, just before noon, says, stop. Why? You can't kill them. Why not? They didn't do it. How do you know? Because I did. Would that ever happen? Would that ever happen? I'll tell you how often it would happen. Scarcely. Second part of verse 7 says, Though perhaps for a good man, one would even dare to die. What's a good man? A good man is a person that as a society we deem is so valuable good relative to us, so valuable that they actually have friends who would die in their place. I'll tell you, Apostle Paul fits the category. Luke would have died for him. Titus would have died for him. Paul had men that if you or us, we will die. Luke literally went into prison with Paul because Paul, as a Roman citizen, was allowed to have a servant go with him into prison. Luke goes on the voyage in Acts 27, goes to house arrest with Paul. I'll do anything. You are valuable. You're the good man. Luke would die for Paul. But that's rare. And listen, that's man at his best. Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friend. Here I said at our best. Every now and you'll find a man will lay down his life for a friend. I'll die in your place. You see verse 7, the righteous person, the innocent person in that situation, the good. You see verse 8. Two, first two words, but God, okay, verse 7 is not saying we are the good and the righteous. We're not that in God's economy. We're the ungodly. Would you take a note? Though extremely rare, a man may die for his friend. But God, verse 8, God's love is contrasted to. Verse 7 is not saying, hey, God's love is kind of like our love. No, it's saying it's the opposite. The best we can do is die for a friend. But God's love 
goes far beyond human love. Almighty, and I use that word on purpose, the Almighty who has power to do anything he wants to his enemies, the Almighty God willingly gave his son to die for his, I've chose these words purposely, insignificant, his insignificant, ungodly enemies. And really in the whole scheme of things, why would the God of the universe die for any one of us or even all of us? Why would he do that? No one does that. No one dies for their enemies. I want you to think of an enemy. By the way, how many of you have a son? You have a son. I have, my hand's up. How many of you have a son? Would you raise your hand? Got your hand up? Wow, a lot of us have sons. Here's my question. If you can think of an enemy times it times a hundred or a thousand because your enemy is nowhere near as much as we were enemies of God. And times that times a thousand. Would you give your son to die for your enemies? I wouldn't. Not even close. No way I'm giving my son to die for my enemies. But God shows his love. I want to plan a thought and we're going to move to number two. Here's the thought. Christian. Because God's already demonstrated his love. Though we are tempted, we can never say, well, if God really loved me, then why did he allow that? Or why doesn't he just do this? Because he can. Don't question the love of God. He's already proven it. God's love for us was never based on how lovable we are. It was always based on God's constancy of character. The constancy. What if we're up and down? I'm good one day. Oh, I'm bad the next day. God's love for us never changes for his people. It's his character. That's why it's called grace. Number two. Number two. Verse 9 and 10. We find our protection from God's future wrath. Our protection from God's future wrath. Look again at verse number 9. Because based off of the truths of verse 6, 7, and 8. Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now, you sense, I hope you're sensing the time factor, this is important. If he died for us there and he saved us there, then much more now that we are reconciled, we are saved, then shall we be saved by his life. Verse 9 and 10, what's it about? And some of you are going to say, Brother Jeff, you just kind of touched on this a couple of weeks ago, and I think a couple of weeks before, I'm going to tell you when we get to chapter 8, we're going to touch on it a lot Verses 9 and 10 are about the assurance of salvation of the believer. It's about the assurance of salvation of the believer. I realize in my audience this morning, there are some of you. This is you. I'm getting ready to describe you. You don't ever struggle with the assurance of your salvation. You just don't. There's some of you right now. And you're, in your heart right now, you're saying, that's me. I just don't struggle with my salvation. I don't struggle. I never get nervous about those things. Can I tell you, by God's grace... I'm in that category. I don't struggle. I got saved when I was nine. I struggled with it probably about every three to four months till I was age 12. But something happened. Me and the Lord, he showed me something in the word of God. And I'm telling you, literally, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying what God's done in me from the time I'm 12 till now, 35 years, I'm now 47. If I have even thought about doubting my salvation, it literally doesn't last longer than like two seconds. It just isn't a factor. Some of you are that way. But I also know in this room right now, there's some of you, oh, it comes up regularly. And you kind of wonder, well, I, I, I'm saved. Oh, I hope I'm saved. And then you hear some certain kind of preaching. And you're like, man, I'm not really sure. And you do this. This is you. You're just not sure about it. Can I tell you something? It is important to God that those who are saved know it. It's important to God. 
that those who are saved know it. You know how I know? He wrote a whole book of the Bible explaining to us that if you're saved, I want you to know it. You have a couple of references. They'll be on the screen. John, 1 John chapter 1. Look what John writes. Here's the youngest of the disciples. Some would say Jesus' favorite disciple. I couldn't disagree with that. We're talking about the twelve. John has already written his gospel. He's going to write the book of Revelation. He hasn't yet, we don't think, written 2nd or 3rd John. But he's writing this letter and it's only five chapters. He gets three verses in and watch what he writes, verse 4. And we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. Hey, John, why are you writing this epistle? I want your joy to be complete. I want you to have joy. And then when he finishes in chapter number 5, verse number 13, look what he writes. Having now finished the letter, he says, I write these things to you I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why, John? That you may know that you have eternal life. John, why did you write this book? I want your joy to be full and complete. I want you to have joy and I want you to know that you're saved. Bring those two together. Here's what he's saying. If you're going through life and you're not sure you're saved, you're on the roller coaster, you cannot have complete joy. But if you know that no matter what, you have eternal life, then no matter what happens in this life, you can still have joy. John says this is important. It matters. So in Romans chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, two aspects of Christ's work are brought forth. Listen, here it comes. Christ's death saved us. Christ's resurrection assures us that we have eternal life. Say it again. His death saves us. His resurrection assures us that we have eternal life. I want to borrow a couple of quotes. I told you I would use a few. Here comes one fairly long one and then one not quite as long. You ready? Warren Wearsby writes the following. He says, a will. W-I-L-L. I have to spell that because I'm southern and sometimes people think I'm talking about W-H-E-E-L or whatever. Okay. Last will and testament. I have one. It's really old. Deanna and I have one. It's old. I probably need to update it, you know, but... I don't even know if we need to update. I don't know if we have anything now that we didn't have then. But anyway, catch what Wearsby says. It's on to something. It's about assurance, right? So he writes the following, quote, A will is of no effect until the death of the one who wrote it. Does everybody understand that? The will doesn't really go effect until they die. Then an executor takes over and sees to it that the will is obeyed. And the inheritance is distributed. But suppose that the executor is unscrupulous and wants to get the inheritance for himself. He may figure out many devious ways to circumvent the law and steal the inheritance. He applies this. He writes, this is important. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ wrote us into his will and he wrote the will with his blood. And he put us into it. And then he says, he died so that the will would be in force. But then he arose from the dead and returned to heaven that he might enforce the will himself and distribute the inheritance. Thus we are saved by his life. Did you catch that? That's verse 10. Verse 6, 7, and 8, we're saved by his death. Verse number 10 says, but we're also saved by his life. He not only died on the cross to put us in the will and dies to enact the will, but he comes back to life by his life to make sure that the will is put in force and the inheritance is given to those to whom it belongs. I'm going to read verse 10 one more time. Your Bible says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now... That we are reconciled, shall we be saved 
by his life. Start to see how those two go together. Not just Christ's death, but his resurrection is important. John MacArthur writes the following two quotes. The second is in your notes. The first one says this. This is theologically correct. This is what chapter 5 verse 10 is saying. He writes, quote, If no sin... By the way, if you need to hear this, if you're not a Christian, you may need to hear this. Somebody this morning, here's what you're struggling with. It's that, would he save me from all that I've done? But you don't know all that I've done. Mine's maybe worse than everyone else in here. I can see why he might save you, but, okay, you need to hear this. If no sin a person commits before salvation is too great for Christ's atoning death to cover... Surely no sin he commits after salvation is too great to be covered. And the quote that's in your notes, he writes, quote, If God's grace covers the sins of even his enemies, back before we were saved, when we were his enemies, if his grace covers our sin in that state, how much more does it cover the sins of his children? Listen, I'm going to tell you something. If I'm benevolent and gracious to my enemies, you better know I'm going to be gracious and benevolent and forgiving to my children I'll just tell you guys straight up if salvation could be lost because of sin I would have lost it and you would too but God is satisfied with the death of Jesus on the cross God he's the judge he's satisfied that's enough to pay not only for one person not only for all their sins but a whole world all their sins all the sins before salvation all the sins they ever will commit that does not give a person hey I'm a Christian great everything I'm going to do is forgiven so I'm just going to go sin a lot absolutely not you don't understand what the Bible's teaching and Paul will get to that in chapter 5 and 6 if it could be lost I would have lost it but you can't It's about security. It's about assurance. God wants his that are saved to know that they're saved. So I'll give you a sentence. It's not in your notes. Hear it. Once obtained, salvation cannot possibly be lost because it is anchored. You say, what's it anchored in? It's anchored in the past. Look back at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. You've heard this a hundred times now, literally. Justified. God declared us righteous. That's God's final verdict. His final verdict on Jeff Bartlett, 1979. Really, it was an eternity past. But in time and space for me, Jeff, 1979, June. Man, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm really close to my spiritual birthday. It was either the first or the second Wednesday night of June, 1979. God said, you're righteous. I didn't have any righteousness. Yeah, but you trusted Christ, my son. Well, all of his righteousness is for you. All of your sin, he took and paid, up, paid on the cross. All of it, you're declared righteous. God's already spoken. That's the final verdict. It's anchored not only in the past, it's anchored in the present. For this, I want you to see a couple passages. Flip forward to just three chapters. Romans 8. Look at Romans 8. I actually read this yesterday at Ron's dad's memorial service. This was just a few verses. We read about half of Romans 8. When we get there in two or three months, we'll really dig into these verses. You say, how do we know that we can't lose our salvation and we can have assurance that we do make it? Look at verse 31. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? Literally what he's saying is, after all that I've said in chapter 8, what's the conclusion? Here's the conclusion. Here's the conclusion. If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen, if you're a Christian today, here's what Paul says. Hey, if God's for you, it doesn't matter who or what is against you. It doesn't matter who or what is against you. 
And then we think, yeah, but what if I sin? But what if I sin? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son. He didn't spare and protect anything but my son. No, God did not do that. But gave him up for us all if he did that. How will he not also with him, with him, graciously give us all things? But again, what if I sin? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The idea, who can successfully bring a case against God's elect? By the way, we have an accuser. I have an accuser. And he tries to tell God, hey, I just saw Jeff doing this. I heard him saying it, and he was thinking that, and he didn't do this, and you said he's supposed to. I'm just here to tell you. Yeah, right. Good try. Verse 33 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. I've already done it. By the way, there is one person who could condemn. You see verse 34? Who is to condemn? One person, Christ Jesus. But it's Christ Jesus is the one who died for us. More than that, who was raised. And you see what he's doing? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You say, how do we know that our salvation is secure and eternal? We can have assurance because it's anchored in the past. It's anchored in the present. Can we have the Hebrews passage? Christ is interceding. You see the Hebrews passage? Look at verse 22 of that passage. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests, I think I read one time, there were 86 high priests in Israel's biblical history. AD 70, the temple was destroyed, so no need for more high priests. But from the book of Exodus, Aaron, to AD 70, I think 86 or 81, one or the other. Well, why so many priests? Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. See that phrase? Save to the uttermost. It means on and on and on, no matter what. He's able to save. How and why? He's able to save those to the uttermost who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You say, how do we know we can have assurance in Christ? God's already made a declaration and Christ is praying that we make it. We're saved by his life. Now, would you would, one more. Go back to Romans 8. We'll skip the Romans 1, or chapter 5, verse 2. You see it on the screen. But look at Romans 8, verse 29. Here's why we know. Here's why we can have assurance. For those whom he foreknew, this is in eternity past, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined. Beforehand, they're going to make it to a destination. What's the destination? He's already predetermined that they will be conformed to the image of his son. Why? In order that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Many. Christ will be the top. Firstborn is the leader of the family. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. He called me in 1979. And those whom he called, he justified. He declared me righteous in 1979. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's the point. Our salvation is anchored in the future because God's going to change. If you're a Christian, God's going to change you. And he's going to remove that that's in you that causes you to doubt and fear. Do you all know what causes us to doubt and fear? What is it? What makes a person, a Christian, who say sometimes, uh, just... Uh, all of a sudden, I'm having some doubts. What's caused that? Three letters. Sin. And when he removes the sin, we will doubt no longer because we'll be glorified in a body that no longer sins. So what do we conclude on our second point this morning? Not to be mean. But for a true believer, that's the key words, 
for a true believer, if you're here this morning, if you are to doubt God's eternal security, that means you're calling into question two things about God. You're calling into question his integrity. Well, I know he said eternal life, but maybe he meant something else or maybe I'm the exception. And you're calling into question God's power. I just don't know that God can keep me saved. I think it was Matthew Henry. I'm not positive. This is a little technical. You have to get this thought. Matthew Henry said, Since with God, saying, watch this, saying and doing are not two different things, then with us, believing and enjoying should be one and the same. Let me say that again. This is a great quote. I wouldn't waste your time. Since with God, saying, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saying. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Since with God, saying, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, they'll come to me, and he that comes to me, I will not cast out. Since with God, saying and doing are not two separate things, they're one, then with us, believing and enjoying should be one and the same. If you're here this morning, you say, oh, I believe John 6, 37. I believe Acts 16, 31. I believe Romans 10, 13. Then enjoy it and stop doubting God. Because when God says it, it's done. When he says, hey, I saved you. Will you? No, I said I did. Did you believe? Yes. Then it did. Enjoy it. Let your believing be enjoyment. Verse 11 of chapter 5. More than that. Are you kidding me? Paul, you've given us in the first 10 verses six things that as justified people, six benefits we have in the Christian life. Paul says, yeah, well, even, even on top, it keeps coming. More than that, let me give you one more earthly benefit. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Third time now he's talked about rejoicing. Rejoicing in hope of the glory to come. Rejoicing in our suffering even in this life. And now he says, more than that, we justified, rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is tricky. Ready? I'm going to kind of split hair just a little. Don't give an outward sign, but be honest inwardly. Are you thankful for the blessings of God? Just inwardly? Are you thankful for the breath he gave you for this life? Are you thankful for your family? Are you thankful... For your house? Are you thankful for your vehicles? Are you thankful for anticipation of something that's coming? You're kind of hopeful. Maybe you're going on a vacation. Or you have a steady income. Are you thankful and grateful for that? Let's step it up. Are you honestly thankful, grateful for your eternal life? Now here's the next question. Do you give thanks for those things? You say, oh, I'm grateful for them. Do you actually take those and verbalize them back to God and say, God, I want to thank you for my house, my family. I'm going to name each member. Lord, thank you for, for my eternal life. Lord, thank you for my mind. Thank you for the ability to see and to hear. Do you literally, if you do, praise the Lord. That's not what this verse is talking about. You say, what? Yeah, we, we rejoice in the things that God gives us. That's not what this verse is talking about. This is not talking about 
rejoicing in God's gifts and rejoicing in God's blessings. Should we do that? Do that, yes, and give thanks. This verse is talking about something on top of that. You say, what does this mean? Just what it says. Right, we rejoice in God's gifts. No, we rejoice in God himself just for who he is. Halverson writes the following, my final quote. He says, get this analogy. We're the bride of Christ. What sort of bride is she who loves her husband only for what she gets out of him? Pity the husband whose wife loves so commercial. Why do you love him? Because what he does for me. No doubt you do. That should enhance. You don't care about him as a person? Pity the husband whose wife is so commercial. Her love is so commercial. He continues. This makes sense in marriage. But how many of us are more interested in God's gifts than in God the giver and in the benefits rather than the benefactor? He says this is the supreme Christian joy. Rejoice in the Lord. So I've got to ask you a question. Do you, sitting there this morning, rejoice in the Lord himself? Do you joy in God? If, say, if you're inwardly saying, yes, I do, I want to ask you, when do you do it? Where do you do it? What does it look like? Be honest. Do you joy in God or you say, oh, wow, that's splitting. Yeah, I pretty good at rejoicing in his gifts. I enjoy those things, and I'm thankful, and from time to time, I even say thank you to God for some of the things, but to rejoice in God himself, I don't know that I do that. Paul says the justified should be about that. Hey, I want to ask you something. Deanna talked about it a while ago. Do you know your God? Individual of grace for you. Do you have a relationship with God, or do you have a checklist? What's your favorite attribute about God? What's the last one you spent God, spent time bringing God into focus? And Lord, I want to kind of talk about your, your eternality. Or, Lord, your holiness is kind of overwhelming, but it's, it's, I love that about you. Or your love, or your goodness. Or God, I even, your righteousness, your justice is, is your power. And how wise you are. We would have never come up with a plan of salvation like we All of our plans of salvation, all the religions of the world, have us earning our way to heaven. You had the only one that really worked. You're so wise and loving. Now you're rejoicing in God. I conclude today with three questions. If you have room in the back of your handout where it says additional notes, if you haven't cluttered that up yet, write these three questions down because this is three. It's a spiritual quiz. That's how we'll finish, spiritual quiz. I hope you go three for three. I really do. The key is you've got to be honest within yourself. Write the question, don't write your answer, okay? Question number one, verse number five. I told you we would end here. Oh, this is simple. This is simple. Everybody needs to do this in your mind. Verse five says God's love has been poured. It's a fact. God's love has been poured into the hearts of believers. That means it's a personal experience for them. That means they know this as much as anything they know in the world, it means they know God loves them in their soul and their spirit. They know that. You say, what's the question? Be honest. Do you know God loves you? Ask yourself, do I know God loves me? Or is this you? Be honest. 
Or as you sit there right now and you say, I don't know God loves me. Here's how I feel. I feel like God is against me and I kind of think God disdains me. I just described somebody in this room. Your heart, in your heart of hearts, you honestly think, God disdains me and God is against me. If so, I'm going to tell you something. His love has not been poured into your heart. A Christian will know. That's not me. Did I accurately divide the, divide the scriptures this morning? Is that accurate? Verse 5 says, it's poured, lavishly, overflowing. You, I know God loves me, do you? Second question also starts with a fact. Here's the fact first. It comes out of verse 9. Verse number 9 says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Here's the fact. I'm being honest with you. By the way, I don't take delight. I promise I don't take delight in this. Here's the fact. The wrath of Almighty, and I include the word Almighty on purpose. The wrath of Almighty God is coming against the ungodly who have mocked the death of His Son for them. And I'm telling you, when it comes, it's going to come swiftly, relentlessly, overwhelmingly, never-endingly, torments. It's coming. Or the Bible's a lie. But if you've been justified, you'll never experience that. But for the ungodly who've rejected Jesus' death on the cross, oh, it is coming. I'm telling you it's coming. Here's the question, number two, write this down. Be honest. Does the fact of God's wrath make me nervous? Some of you are sitting there, yes, God's wrath makes me nervous for my loved one. I totally get that. I'm not talking about for your loved one. I'm saying for you as a person, you need to answer this. The fact is God's wrath is coming. When you hear that and you're like, I believe that. I understand that. Does it make you nervous? It doesn't make me nervous. I promise you, it doesn't make me nervous. Does it make you nervous? You say, Jeff, I'm not going to show it outwardly, but inside right now, man, I just went 0 for 2. If you don't know that God loves you, you kind of think he disdains you and he's against you and the fact of his wrath makes you extremely nervous. I'm going to tell you one of two things and probably the first one, here's the truth about you, you've never been saved. Or you say the fact of God's wrath makes me nervous. Maybe you're like me for three years there, nine to twelve years of age. You're saved but you sure do lack assurance. I'm going to tell you something, God wants his people to know a Christian should not go through this life with fear. And then the third one comes out of verse 11. Verse 11 says, those who've truly been justified rejoice in God. I'm going to ask you, does that ring true? Or is that a whole foreign concept? Can you relate to people that praise God just for who he is, not just for his blessings? Or do you have to be honest and say, Brother Jeff, I just enjoy the blessings. I just enjoy the blessings. I don't really rejoice in God himself. I never think about his person. I never think about... His attributes, the ones I love, the ones I'm uncomfortable with, just the ones straight out of the Word of God. I don't ever do that. I don't rejoice in God. If that is you, I'm going to tell you something. You may not be saved. Hey, I hope everybody in here, you just went three for three. Do you know God loves you? Does the, does the fact of the wrath of God make you nervous? Can you relate? You say, I rejoice in God, not just as gifts. I rejoice in God. I hope you went three for three, but if you didn't, you need to get that settled. Listen carefully. This is urgent. What I'm talking about is urgent. 
Why? Because it's eternal. Listen, your lunch plans, I, I think we got a lunch plan. Your lunch plan, that is not urgent. You say, oh, it is. We got a whole group. Your lunch plan is not urgent, I promise you. In 100 years, you'll look back and say, that was not important. What he was talking about that day meant everything because it got me to where I am. Or I wished I would have listened that day, but I was thinking about lunch. That's not urgent. This is urgent. Today, you need to talk about somebody about getting this settled. You just need to cry out to God, God, please save me. I believe you'll save me. If you'll save me when I'm a sinner, I believe you'll keep me saved once I'm a saint and a, and a child of God. I am calling out to you today. I am going to believe. I'm going to trust. I want all those benefits. I want to rejoice in you. I don't want to be your enemy anymore. I want to be your child. You need to do it today. If you don't do it in this service, you need to run us down. Catch me. Say, forget shaking those people's hands. We got to talk today. I got to get this settled. If you didn't go three for three, that's a problem. The plan of salvation, the very last thing before we bring this to a close, is chapter 4, verse number 20. So how do I get saved? No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. What kind of faith did Abraham have? Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's how you get saved. When you become fully convinced, God will do what he says. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. If you ever have that kind of faith, God says, I'm going to count your faith as righteousness. You don't have any, but I'm going to give you the righteousness of Christ. Verse 23 and 4 and 25 brings it home to us. But the words that was counted to him, Abraham, they were not written just for his sake alone, but for ours also. Here it comes. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses. He was delivered up. Chapter 5 says when we were his weak, ungodly enemies, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We are saved by his death and we're assured of salvation by his life. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? This is urgent. Because it's eternal. Abraham was saved because he believed God's wild, wild promises. I'm asking you this morning, will you believe God's wild promises to you? God promises whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's in your soul and spirit. That's not an outwardly vocal prayer. God says, if you'll believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's what God promises. Abraham, believe. Do you believe? I want to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you to respond by a raised hand this morning. Very simple. Here it comes. Do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And here's the qualifier. You say, I have a Bible reason. Would you raise your hand? You say, I know for a fact. But Jeff, I am not one of those. I don't struggle with assurance. Would you raise your hand, hold it up just for a moment. Am I being very, very clear? You say, I know for sure I am a Christian. Thank you. You may put them down. I see several hands that couldn't go up or didn't go up. If your hand didn't go up, I'm going to ask you this. Do you believe God loves you? Do you believe God loves you? And secondly, do you believe he would actually forgive you if you ask him? Do you believe he will forgive you? You say, Jeff, I honestly believe God loves me. The Bible just made that so clear 
John 3.16 was running all through today's passage. I know God loves me, and I believe he will forgive me if I ask him. So here's the next question. Will you ask him right now? By the way, I'm not talking about for the fourth and fifth time. Hey, I've had some sin come in my life, preacher. Uh, I need to get that right, and so I'm going to pray this prayer. Now, if, if that's all you're doing, you don't need to pray this prayer. I'm talking about something that you have a, 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 an encounter with God, and you put faith in Him. This happens one time, and based on Romans 5, 9, and 10, it's forever and ever and ever, one time. If you couldn't raise your hand, and you say, oh, I, I believe, I believe God really loves me. And based off what you said, I believe He really will forgive. He said He would. 1 John 1 9 says if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins say I believe well I'm going to invite you right now bring God into your focus take me into the background and just let me prompt you some truths it's more about your faith I promise it's all about your faith I've asked the Lord today Lord would you save somebody would you love another one that's you would you talk to God he hears you I promise he hears you from your soul and spirit just in sincerity very simply starts here God I've sinned against you I have sinned against your holy nature God I deserve your punishment but God I believe you love me I believe you gave Jesus to die for me. That's what you said. It's for me. Keep talking to him. Talk to him. God, I believe that his death is enough to pay for all of my sin. And Lord, you said if I'll ask you, you'll forgive me. So I'm asking you right now. I'm taking you up on your promise. Right now, tell God, God, save me, please through what Jesus did on the cross remove my sin be my Lord and Savior tell him right now God I believe you I am taking you up on it now you have to save me and I know you did you may be here this morning and you literally just prayed that or you may be here and you say I just need to talk with somebody you're here and you say, Jeff, no one looking around. I just asked the Lord to save me. I took him up on his offer and I'm not ashamed and I'm going to raise my hand. If that's you, would you raise your hand this morning? Anywhere? Hold it up just for a moment. Yes, I see that one. Anybody else? I see, yes, I see that one to my right. Two to my right. I see three. Yes, back there in the back and to my right in the middle. Three. Thank you. Hey, I'm wondering, anybody here today, you say, Jeff, I just need to talk to somebody. And I'm ready to talk today. Would you raise your hand? Anybody? This is important. This is urgent. This is eternal. Thank you for you three. I saw three. Two young ladies. And a very young man. Christian, just before we sing, can I talk with you? Let's not leave without applying. Christian, will you talk to God if you need to? This won't be all, but if you need to talk to God and say, Lord, I've been questioning your love. 
And today you remind me I can never question your love. I'm sorry. I know you're sovereign and I know I'll have suffering and I still know you love me. I will not question that again. Don't raise your hand. Just talk to him and say, God, I'm sorry. And maybe there's one more Christian in here this morning. Here's what you'd say. God, I've been rejoicing in your gifts and I'm thankful. But I sure need to do a lot better about rejoicing in you. And talk to him right now. God, you know the needs this morning. Lord, thank you that just in the right time you made the plan of salvation and the person of Christ clear to three people these two young ladies this young man Lord thank you that they had the courage to raise their hand Lord if it be in your grace would you let me meet them even after the service just to encourage them and Lord be with us as your people Help us to never question your love. And Lord, I know it gets tough. And Lord, let us rejoice in you. Would you stand this morning? Let's sing. Chris is going to lead us in song. And when he's finished, Brother David Kyle, if you don't mind, would you just come close us in prayer when Chris finishes? I know you see me, God. Yeah.